The University of Florida College of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The University of Florida College of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. Welcome to UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. I'm Melanie Cole, and joining me today is Dr. Calvin Choi. He's an associate professor of medicine in the UF Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. He specializes in interventional cardiology, and he practices at UF Health Shands Hospital. And Dr. Mohamed Alani. He's an assistant professor in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. He specializes in heart failure, transplant, and cardiac imaging, and he practices at UF Health Shands Hospital. They're here to offer an update in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy today. Doctors, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Alani, I'd like to start with you as we speak about the heritable heart diseases that involve structural changes in heart muscle. Can you tell us a little bit about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the prevalence, the scope of the issue we're discussing today, and what you see in the trends? Yeah, sure. Hi, and thank you so much for having us. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy involves really abnormal hypertrophy and disarray of myocardial fibers. That gives rise to abnormal heart function. So hallmarks are myocardial stiffness and hyperdynamic function. And there are also associated structural changes represented by hypertrophy of the muscle in different patterns. So there are different phenotypes. The most common phenotype recognizes thickening of the septum in particular, but all other areas of the ventricle can become thickened, and even the right ventricle can become thickened as well. The chamber size, the ventricular chamber size, may get small, and many patients have obstruction to blood flow in the ventricle, and there are also some features of abnormal perfusion to the heart, abnormal microcirculation, and abnormal function of the mitral valve. So each individual with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they have their own combination of these features. But the hallmark of the disease, all of these patients, they have in common abnormal hypertrophy and disarray of the myocardial fibers. Most cases occur due to a gene mutation that we know of. So about 60 to 70% of patients, if they get tested, we're able to identify the mutation that's causing the hypertrophy. But in the remaining cases, we don't detect the mutation. However, we think that there is probably a mutation under there that is yet to be discovered. It runs in families for sure, and that's why genetic testing and counseling is important. From a diagnostic standpoint, we start thinking about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy when the left ventricular wall thickness is more than 15 millimeters. And most individuals with water therapies, they carry normal life expectancy. And a common question that comes up is actually a confusion with athletes' hearts. So athletes can train their heart to become very efficient. And with that, sometimes comes thickening of the heart. So that can sometimes be confused with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we have ways to tell apart if the person has an athlete's heart that's healthy or is it an abnormal hypertrophy of the heart muscle. 
I'm glad you made that point, because that is an important distinction. And as we're talking about distinctions, Dr. Alani, I'd like you to kind of tell us how these other things fit under the umbrella of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and speak about hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy and left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and kind of how these all go together. So obstruction to blood flow occurs in about 75% of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy cases. It occurs in one of two places. It can occur either at the outlet of the left ventricle where the mitral valve anatomy and motion are abnormal, leading to abnormal movement or pulling of that anterior leaflet of the mitral valve into the left ventricular outflow, and that can cause various degrees of obstruction to blood flow out of the left ventricle and various degrees of associated mitral regurgitation. And another common type that can also happen is obstruction of blood flow in the middle of the ventricle. So the chamber is small, the chamber is hyperdynamic, and so it can sort of close in the middle of the ventricle when it's contracting at maximum degree, you know, in middle-late systole, and that can cause obstruction as well. Now, obstruction can be provoked. So some patients have obstruction at rest, but Others have no obstruction of flow at rest, but they do obstruct under certain circumstances. So if the left ventricle is underfilled, for example, the patient is performing valsalva or bearing down, a patient is dehydrated or standing quickly. If the heart is stimulated to be hyperdynamic, such as with exercise, with fast heart rates, or when the patient has low blood pressure, for example, and these are conditions that we try to bring when we test these patients in the echo lab or in clinic to identify that obstruction. Dr. Alani, sticking with you for just a minute here, I'd like you to speak about evaluation and how you diagnose these. When is genetic testing indicated? When do these show themselves? And how have advances in some of the imaging enabled you in your diagnostic and therapeutic capabilities for these? Please speak about all of these things and evaluation, symptom risk stratification. Tie that all together for us. Most individuals are really asymptomatic. So some of them, they come to us because there is a family member who's affected and they'd like to be screened. And that's how we find out that they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And some patients, they do have an array of symptoms. Heart murmur is a common one, shortness of breath, dizziness, passing out, syncope, somebody who has had an ECG that is very abnormal. So those are the common ways that patients get diagnosed or suspected to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and get referred to our clinic. Now, in terms of diagnosis, the first thing we'll have to do is we'll have to establish that the heart structure. And so you would want to do your normal cardiology evaluation with history and normal cardiac exam and an ECG. And usually with an ECG, you would often see signs of hypertrophied left ventricle with very high voltage QRS and bizarre repolarization pattern. And then with cardiac imaging, starting with an echo, you would see thickness of the left ventricle, as we mentioned, more than 15 millimeters, hyperdynamic function, and you would see in most patients 
obstruction to the LV blood flow. And if we don't see that obstruction at rest, as we mentioned, we would do provocation starting with Volsalva. And if there is no obstruction with Volsalva, then we may even exercise them with an echo to bring out that obstruction. And if the above is concerning, at least, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then we will have to confirm the diagnosis by obtaining either an MRI or a CT of the heart to basically accurately and precisely measure that wall thickness, define where is the thickening happening. And MRI also helps us detect fibrosis that is very commonly associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And that ties into risk stratification for arrhythmia that Dr. Choi will tell us about later. And it also helps us detect the mechanism of any obstruction, where is it happening and what's causing it, because that can help us relieve that obstruction later. And genetic testing comes into the picture in two ways. In cases of borderline testing where some signs indicate maybe hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but others don't quite fit, then genetic testing can help break the tie. But more importantly, perhaps, and more commonly, if we diagnose a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then first-degree relatives of that person need to be screened. And genetic testing help us because if we identify the gene in that person, you would test the first-degree relatives. And if they do have the gene, they need lifelong periodic screening and engagement with a cardiologist. If they don't have the gene, then they are screened out and they can pursue normal medical care without worrying about it. Wow, that was so comprehensive. So Dr. Choi, we did not forget about you. And so I would like you to speak a little bit more, expand on risk stratification and what's also involved. I'd like you to start into medical management when you're talking about starting with non-surgical, some of the new medications available. Please tell us what's going on as far as management. In terms of risk stratification, we start with a thorough history and physical examination, as Dr. Alani mentioned. With that information, we are able to streamline what is effective and most efficient way to identify patients at risk. So some of the tests we've mentioned, echo, cardiac CT, MRI, stress test, ambulatory monitor are mainstays of uh, risk stratification. So in terms of risk stratification, we are interested in preventing sudden cardiac death in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Again, this is not something that affects vast majority of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but very small subset of the patients are at risk for sudden cardiac death. The way to prevent that is the placement of a defibrillator. Class 1 indication includes sudden cardiac death, ventricular arrhythmia, Class 2A indications include family history of sudden cardiac death, left ventricular hypertrophy with septal thickness greater than 30 millimeters, unexplained syncope, apical aneurysm, left ventricular ejection fraction less than 50%, abnormal exercise blood pressure response, either less than 20 millimeters of mercury increase or greater than 20 millimeters of mercury decrease in blood pressure during exercise. Class 2B indications include non-sustained VT and extensive late gadolinium enhancement and cardiac MRI, where the scar, or rather 
Lake gadolinium enhancement exceeds 15% of the total myocardium. Moving on to the medical management, there are several options. Now, typically, first strategy is to avoid vasodilators, which can precipitate hypotension and hence worsen outflow obstruction. Now, the dehydration and use of diuretics are common issues that we advise patients to keep an eye out for. We advise patients to remain hydrated and avoid diuretics if possible. Some of the medications like digoxin can potentially worsen outflow tract obstruction due to positive inotropic effect. So digoxin is certainly a medication that we encourage patients to avoid. Other inotropic agents can precipitate outflow truck obstructions as well. So these are the things that first-line recommendations to avoid precipitation of LV outflow obstruction. In terms of treatment, we recommend controlling the heart rate, hence improving the left ventricular filling, and reduce LVOT obstruction. Typically, beta blocker is used. Verapamil, which is a non by hydropyridine calcium channel blocker can be used. Disoapyramide, which is an antiarrhythmic agent with negative inotropic properties, can be used as well. However, this is a second-line agent. As mentioned before, defibrillator is used to prevent sudden cardiac death in patients who are at increased risk for sudden cardiac death. The novel agent, Mavacampton, is a new kid on the block. This is recently approved by FDA for patients with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. This is a first in-class selective cardiac myosin ATPase inhibitor. It reduces actin myosin cross-bridge formation, reduces contractility, improved cardiac efficiency, and studies have supported its use in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with obstruction. Moving on to the invasive treatment, we have septal reduction therapy. There are two options for septal reduction therapy. One is myectomy, and the other one is alcohol septal ablation. Myectomy is a surgical procedure where surgeons, under direct vision, remove part of the basal septal wall. Alcohol septal ablation is a chemical means of reducing the basal septum with infusion of alcohol into a specific septal perforator. So with respect to septal reduction therapy, we're talking about myectomy and alcohol septal ablation. Now, who benefits from myectomy or alcohol septal ablation? That's a question we often get asked. So this is uh, treatment options offered to patients with refractory symptoms despite medical therapy. It does not correlate with mortality benefit. However, it does improve patients' quality of life. Myectomy is a surgical procedure. It requires sternotomy and cardiopulmonary bypass and resection of myocardium from the left ventricular basal septum. Alcohol septal ablation is a catheter-based procedure, and it requires suitable coronary anatomy where we inject alcohol into parts of the thickened heart muscle to scar the tissue and hence reduce the thickness of myocardium. There are several differences between myectomy and alcohol septal ablation. As mentioned, myectomy is an open heart surgery that requires cardiopulmonary bypass and sternotomy. With alcohol septal ablation is a catheter-based procedure, does not require bypass, does not require sternotomy. Myectomy is often considered a definitive therapy 
whereas alcohol septic ablation is often considered as a secondary therapy for patients who are at high risk or perhaps even an inoperable candidate due to other comorbidities. The main discussion I have with patients when we're talking about myectomy versus alcohol ablation is need for permanent pacemaker. With myectomy, need for permanent pacemaker is approximately 5%, whereas alcohol ablation, the risk is higher. We generally say it's in the ranges of 10 to 15%. So that is an important factor to consider because once you require permanent pacemaker, either from myectomy or alcohol ablation, this is a permanent commitment. You cannot remove the pacemaker because you are dependent on pacemaker. So it's not a temporary treatment, but a permanent treatment. Another difference between myectomy and alcohol ablation is the recovery period. Myectomy typically takes six to eight weeks of recovery, whereas alcohol ablation, typically patients are able to return to their normal activities within a week. This is such an interesting topic, doctors, and as an exercise physiologist, I have seen this and it's just so important what you're really imparting your expertise for other providers. And I'd like to give you each a chance for a final thought. And Dr. Alani, to start with you, please tell us about the UFHCM program. Tell us a little bit about the importance of the multi the multidisciplinary approach and why that's so important for these patients and the unique areas that set you apart and why it's important to refer to the specialists at UF Health Shands Hospital. So the program that we have we're really proud of at UF, we approach this as a team. So we have a team from interventional cardiology, Dr. Choi, myself from heart failure and imaging. We also have other cardiologists who specialize in electrophysiology, in imaging, in interventional cardiology. We have a geneticist and we have cardiac surgery with us. And um, we try to give attention to each patient to define their particular phenotype and risk stratify them for complications such as arrhythmias, identify how much quality of life impairment they have due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and accordingly would they need a defibrillator or not for protection and what is the best way to improve cardiac function and blood flow so they can have a good quality of life. And so you cannot really refer a patient to us too early. If hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is suspected in a patient, we are always happy to see those patients and arrange an evaluation for them as soon as possible. And we meet monthly in a multidisciplinary way to review cases who are suspected to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy after we complete the initial workup. A few notes that I have for providers who don't commonly see hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that comes up a lot. The first thing that comes up a lot is that Dr. Choi mentioned that vasodilators need to be avoided. Dehydration definitely can cause 
those symptoms to bring up. Now, this is 100% true, and we all are cautious about these medicines. However, that does not mean that we don't treat their blood pressure. If the patient is hypertensive, you would still treat the blood pressure. You have just to be cognizant that this is a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient, especially if they are obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and be very cautious about getting that blood pressure on the lower range. But at the same time, if they need a blood pressure medicine, then we can still use blood pressure medicines. And as Dr. Choi mentioned, we would normally start with a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker as our first choice. So that's one point. The other point is that young patients, we are always happy to see them sooner than later because we all know, as we have more data come on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that if it starts early in life, then it progresses faster. And so we're always happy to see those patients sooner than later. The last thing I would say is a comment on Mavacamptin. So we have in our program started several patients on Mavacamptin, and we have had great success with it. We have a streamlined way of finding up patients to therapy, and there is a very structured and FDA-mandated follow-up to make sure that we are dosing the medication safely and make sure that we monitor patients for side effects. And, and the main side effect that we all watch for is causing ejection fraction or cardiac systolic function to drop too low. So we want to relieve that hyperdynamic function to a normal function, but we don't want to reduce it below normal. And this is something we have a streamlined way to systematically monitor and adjust the dose to make sure that we achieve that sweet spot. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Alani. And Dr. Choi, last word to you. I'd like you to speak to other providers about anything exciting or the most exciting advances in inherited cardiac disease, follow up what you really want the key takeaways from this podcast today to be about. Dr. Alani has mentioned at UF Health uh, Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, we provide a comprehensive evaluation and complete treatment options for the patients. These include leading-edge imaging studies as well as the latest pharmacotherapy, including Mavicampton. Each patient is evaluated and discussed amongst our interdisciplinary team, which consists of interventional cardiology, electrophysiology, heart failure, imaging, cardiac surgeons, as well as genetic counseling. Now, because hypertrophic cardiomyopathy tends to be associated with an autosomal dominant genetic defect, genetic counseling is a critical component of the evaluation and treatment for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and patients who are related to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients. Thank you both so much for joining us today and sharing your incredible expertise. To refer your patient or for more information, please visit ufhealth.org HCM or to listen to more podcasts from our experts, you can visit ufhealth.org medmatters. That concludes today's episode of UF Health Med EdCast with UF Health Shands Hospital. For updates on the latest medical advancements, breakthroughs, and research, Follow us on your social channels. I'm Melanie Cole.